Peace, peace, and welcome. This is uh, really, really fun to do. I am here with one of uh, the young men I grew up around. We went to high school together for a minute, and it's been dope to, you know, kind of catch glimpses of his journey in education, uh, the work he's doing in Philadelphia. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting into, as well as all of his thoughts and uh, perspective on what it's been like to shift to um, virtual learning, the current situation we have going on after the murder of George Floyd, and um, the way that he sees himself in this work as a representation of uh, a black man that is self-actualized and, and, and has reached a level of consciousness that uh, I think we should you know, take heed to and, 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 and learn more from. So, Mr. Hakeem Rose, what's, what's, what's going on, my good brother? <laughs> my man, the introduction is golden, brother. Let me tell you that first. <laughs> blessed, man. Blessed. Blessed in every, you know, shape, form, and fashion, man. Thankful to be here, bro. This is dope. I'm glad that you're doing this, man, and the way that you're utilizing your platform. It's an honor to be here, brother. Yeah, yeah, nah, yeah, this is going to be fun because, uh, all right, so uh, Hakeem, when we were growing up, Hakeem was like like the, the guy all the girls liked. Like, Hakeem was like, you know, had this like brilliant smile. Everybody was cool with him. And then oh, I man. was like, why can't you be cool like Hakeem? <laughs> And, what? Uh, we went to this high school called Thurgood Marshall, and uh, and and um, he was connected to an organization called 100 College Prep. Yes, sir. HBCU, but like, um, where did you end up finishing high school? Did you finish? You didn't finish at Thurgood, right? When no, you? I didn't, man. I didn't. I finished at Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. Um, let's let's get into a little bit about just like how you grew up. Ah, man, I knew we were going on this trip, man. It's been so long. <laughs> man, so, I mean, growing up for me, man, I don't reflect on it too much, man, because it tends to take me back to a lot of those traumatizing experiences that kind of, I would say I use as motivation today to be able to do what I do now when working with kids and always vested in the community and all of those great things. But uh, growing up was tough, man. I mean, me and you both know going to school in the Bayview Hunters Point, man, was tough at that point in time, brother. Uh, trying to just kind of survive that gang violence going on. In a lot of instances, man, you got young brothers killing each other, you know, just for the simple fact that we're too prideful to be able to communicate. You know, we couldn't break those barriers at that young age, man. And it resulted in a lot of my good friends uh, not being able to be able to tell their stories, you know, or be there as fathers for their children. But uh, for me, man, I always seen so many negative examples. It just kind of propelled me to just say, man, I don't want that life for myself. You know, it was kind of that, that, that ability to be able to see, man, I could see that that could be me easily. I make that one wrong decision or associate myself or widen my circles too much when I'm not focusing on the quality of the individual. I could potentially lead myself in that same trajectory, which is going nowhere. And being able to see those examples, man, just made me hungry. And so I was, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to meet some fortunate people along my journey, man. I went to Martin Luther King Middle School, 
um, right off of San Bruno. I still got my California man. I've been going to Philly for a long time. Uh -huh. but I, still got that, man. I went to King, and the King was interested, man, because you had every hood that converged on that one school. So mm -hmm. for me, man, it was that training ground to be able to, as some would say, coming out of, come out of my square box because I went to Lakeshore. So I was, you know, I was kind of, you know, I was the school president, you know, fifth grade. I was good with everybody, the athlete. Just kind of played it cool in my lane. I come over to Martin Luther King, man. I start hanging out in the towers because I play baseball. But that was my training ground to really get to see the different perspective of people coming from the streets, man, and coming from them traumatized backgrounds and how everybody has the same intentions for wanting to do great things. But it's, it's barriers that they couldn't even control because they inherited it. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so getting that lesson for me, man, it just really made me see the full spectrum and just said, look, I can make it out of this. I really could. And mm -hmm. so, man, I was fortunate enough to become a part of that um, the algebra project out of Martin Luther King under Miss Carell, which was an awesome opportunity to be able to get over my fear, my anxiety of math. Because in my household, man, we came from fixed mindsets. If my dad not good at math or my mom not good at math, so I'm supposed to be destined to not be good at math. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that was the barrier for me, which, you know, was a little demeaning for, for a second because I hid behind that fear of math and, and kind of expressed that, that fear in different ways by just not participating, wanting to not go to class, wanting to kind of hang with the cool kids. But when I met Miss Carell, man, she just said, look, you're not going to recess none this whole school year. If you don't stay in here for a good week and be able to answer multiplication problems one through 12, it saved my life, man. Because for the first time I met that mentor that just motivated me to just say, look, if I don't push myself, nobody else is going to do it. So stepped up, man, got over my anxiety, started being able to articulate in front of people, man, and just getting over the fear of traveling because they sent me to Mississippi. They sent me to Atlanta. Um, and from there, man, I made it out the bay. You know, I made it out the bay, man. I, I never looked back at 18. I graduated, left, went to Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, Johnson C. Smith University, majored in mass communications, was fortunate enough to meet my wife, got me here to Philly, and mm -hmm. now, man, I just hit the ground running just with my passion, just in another, you know, another city, man, another place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I definitely want to get into the, your HBCU experience and, and your current work, because um, I think, you, I mean, with, with, I think the work you're doing, we're both in education, um, it'd be great to get into the dynamics of what's, what's going on in Philadelphia around uh, school right now. But um, uh, I met your dad and, uh, at, at an event uh, in San Francisco. It was like a scholarship event for black students. And he was just, he was just, he just hella smooth. So I was like, I just wanted to walk up to him. I was like, hey, brother, you're a smooth looking brother. That's it, man. You're OG, brother. Yeah. And then he came up to me. He was like, you know, my son, Hakeem. And I was like, oh, it makes sense that that's your kid because he's smooth like you smooth. <laughs> that's my man, man. That's my man. Um, yeah, so, uh, so uh, you talked about coming up and getting through a lot. Like, what was the – say a little bit about – are you the only child? Like, what, what was your – No, I'm the oldest. I'm the oldest of three. So it's okay. me and my two other siblings. Okay, 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 cool. And um, – you left from San Francisco, which, you know, I think, I think like the people don't realize like the city isn't very diverse, but a lot of our public schools, there are very few white kids in certain schools, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. MLK is one of those schools. Lakeshore is not. Lakeshore is no. not the city. Um, Thurgood was one of those schools. There's very few white kids. It's mostly white teachers, but it's all kids of color. And mm -hmm. then you went from there to Lincoln, which has 
a higher white population. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I went to college in, in Massachusetts that was not diverse at all, and you went to mm -hmm. an all-black college. What was, like, share a little bit about that experience for you. What was that like for you? Mm. Man, it was... Um, Met your wife, so that sounds like that's positive. <laughs> yeah, of course, man. That's the biggest takeaway of all. But um, mm -hmm. it just broadened my horizons, man, and just the depth of black people. You know, I got to be able to see every type of black person, man, um, that was passionate about so many different things, man. Meet people that made it out the same circumstance as myself. Uh, meet black kids that had the legacy of HBCUs and their families and how much that meant to them and just in the uplifting of that, man. And for once, I never, I mean, I didn't, I never felt black. I mean, being mm -hmm. on campus, I never thought about my color. So being able to see the other side of the spectrum and, you know, making that transition to Lincoln when I went there, man, it was it was shell shock because I went from not really being aware of my color because I'm not the minority to shift into the minority. And it's to, to a degree, it felt criminal. It felt like I was criminalized a little bit to a degree because I always felt guilty. I was always the person that, you know, was pointed out for such and such in class. You thought I was cheating. I mean, it was a lot of psychological things I didn't know I was going through at that time. But I was experiencing, man, which was totally different from the Thurgood experience. But in the HBCU world, man, it just was no thought of that, man. I just was able to just be who I was and just enjoy the culture, man, in just so many different aspects. Mm -hmm. And now and now you're a father. Yes, sir. How many kids do you have? I have two. Two kids. Okay. Um, so you, you meet your wife, you fall in love, you move to Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, whoa, why Philadelphia? Um, for me, man, it was moving to opportunity because I know coming from, from San Francisco, man, I didn't have much of a foundation, real small family. Um, I didn't have much of a foundation. And for me, the biggest thing was I needed to invest in somewhere where my kids had a foundation. You know, they had a deep sense of family. They had all those resources that we need to thrive as one. And the negative energy and a lot of instances can kind of shift that whole, you know, mindset. And for a kid, man, it starts with the seed. If you're not giving them what they need in those foundational years, man, you're really not going to get that back unless they choose to do such. So for Philadelphia, man, my mother-in-law owned a preschool. And I just happened to go into education because I transitioned from communication. Wasn't many opportunities. I had a family. I had to go get it. So Diane Gray, one of my third mothers from the 100% College Club, always said, yo, you need to be an educator, Akeem. I'm telling you all the time. Mm -hmm. Like, this is what you do. Every mm -hmm. summer I'm coming back home, I'm, I'm working at the Y, I'm tutoring at the 100% College Club, I'm, I'm speaking symposium, you know, set somewhere. I'm doing something with kids and community. And so Diane, she ends up telling me, look, you either do that and give it a try because you never know where you can go with it. And man, it was just that one conversation. I said, you know what? Why not do it? Why not do it? So we moved to Philly. Enrolled in Cheney, got a full ride scholarship, you know, for my master's, man. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, um, and it just and it just kind of just skyrocketed from there, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, shout out to Diane. She's uh, yes. always supported and helped me. I didn't get to meet her when I was a student, but since I've been trying to build and do things in the city around education policy, like she's just always been there. And um, and when I've had some hard moments, she's been there. So shout out to her. I gotta have her come on. She's a she's a she's a uh, a gift and a blessing to the city of San Francisco. Yes, indeed. Uh, talk a little bit about the, the black family. 
Like that's aspiration. I know that's a big question, but like, yeah. you come off as a man of intention and like, and, and, and you know, deep thought. And um, for me, you know, I don't have children or a wife, right? And I think about um, the statement that I want to make through the black family and, and how that's supposed to be a representation of um, like beauty, health, like, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, when, when I say that, well, well you're, you're actually like living it now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on the black family? Man, it's everything, man. That's everything. It's what motivates me to do everything that I do. Every dime of what I make, man, only amounts to what, what I can do with my family, um, what I can do for my family um, with that. But um, for me, man, and my wife, because I feel like you have to have that companion, man, that's on the same wavelength with you. You know, that has somewhat of the same aspirations to a degree when it comes to just the hunger for more and, and placing that in the right place, which is your kids and the foundation we build. But for me, man, one of the biggest things we do with my kids, man, is we just diversify as many experiences as we can in the world for them. So, I mean, I need my kids to be critical thinkers. So we're constantly engaging in conversation. We're never watering down our vocabulary. If our kid uses use a word that, you know, that's a little bit out of their age range, we're praising them for because we, we're trying to develop thinkers, right? We always want them to be able to rationalize around situations and be able to, you know, to converse. And that starts at a young age, man, and we value that communication. But um, just the unit of the Black family, bro, is the most important thing, man, is, is just making that sacrifice. Making mm-hmm. that sacrifice um, and knowing that you walk alone. Because when you get to that level to where you start to cultivate in your family, man, all those outside influences that you once had that are totally separate from your direction, you have to let go. I mean, and it, it, it may change in a level, in a dynamic of a relationship, but everything is dedicated to the direction of where your family goes and it's no longer about you anymore. And I think when, as those leaders or those giants of your village, which is the husband and the wife, it's on us to instill those things in our kids. But for, in my particular journey, man, it's just been just constant self-reflection to always make sure that I'm always exposing my kids to all of their passions. I find something that they're passionate about. I'm pouring everything that I can into that resource to make sure that they have it. Because one of the biggest things that I want to ensure is that when we do have to let go and our kids do walk into adulthood, I can sit back and say, you know, what? we gave them everything possible that we should have given them to prepare them for the world. So when they walk into it, if they make a mistake, they've made a conscious decision that I made a mistake. I know how I made that mistake. I know I can I make amends with that and correct that mistake, but I can acknowledge that I knew better. Mm-hmm. And those are the consistent messages and, and, and gems that I always, and my wife, we always try to instill. And uh, we just do it doing experiences, man. We out bird watching. You know, we're riding bikes. We're hiking. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? We're reading poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter right now is working on um, music production. So she says she like beats. I'm fine to be so my spirit time to say, yo, what you think about that? Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Make another one so we can try to make a song to it. We just pushing that creativity in. Mm-hmm. And that just excites them about learning. It excites them about the whole unit of family. And, and, and what I realize is that they invest everything into what they know, which is family. Mm-hmm. So friends are secondary. It's a good thing, but family is that primary thing, that source to my growth. And um, it's just amazing watching it in your kids. So for me, man, that's black love and black family to me. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you being open to talk and share about that. And um, one of one of the things that uh, 
I'm trying to elevate more of in the discussions that I have is, you know, um, how people are living out the values that they profess in their work. Because mm-hmm. you have like in the space that I'm in, especially in politics, we'll have people that may be effective in their political work, but um, are absent at home or are very like, you know, they, they talk a good game, but they're not living it out. Mm-hmm. You are a person that, um, just based on our conversations, that uh, like this is like a 360 thing, you know. Mm-hmm. So when you step up, when you step out into the world, and you're working with families, and you're 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 working with children, like the I think it, you come from a place of integrity. If uh, your your values are clear and aligned as it relates to you know what you're building at home, because mm-hmm. you know, they say. Um, you know, get your house in order, right? Before you yeah. go out and fix the world. And so, uh, so you're out in the world and you are the assistant principal of mm-hmm. uh, charter school in, in Philadelphia. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned that you got a full ride uh, to get your teaching, your master's in education. And, um, mm-hmm. and so tell me a little bit about your, your school. Like, what, explain, paint a picture for us. Okay. So um, I'm currently assistant principal, like you said, uh, Universal Institute Charter School in South Philadelphia, um, Center City, Philadelphia. Um, and we're a population of about 656 scholars. Um, we refer to our students as scholars because, right, you, you, you hear it, you believe it, you, of course, can achieve it. So um, for us, we're a predominantly African-American population, Title I school. So uh, most of our students are living below the poverty line. Um, and we're K through 8. Um, I think a lot of the great things that we do at my school is we have a Afrocentric um, um, social studies program that's just focused on the African culture. Uh, we have an enriched uh, drumming, African drumming program, African dance. Uh, we offer um, the arts when it comes to coding. Um, our instruction, our teachers are just are, are dedicated for the most part. And I think when I say dedicated, I mean committed to the kids because not only are they given hundred percent when it comes to uh, standing in front of kids every single day, trying to do the best that they can. Um, but they're involved in the community as well, shoulder to shoulder. Uh, we do a lot of things for the community. We just got finished doing a produce drive. You know, we're going through COVID right now. And, you know, the biggest thing is the school and community is the school steps up to fill in the gaps that the community is experiencing in the current time. So, you know, we're handing out food, food um, working with our Muslim serve um, organization in the city. Um, but most importantly, just overall, uh, we're just a school that's continuously growing, man. Not afraid of innovation. We're always pushing the envelope and um, and connecting with people. You know, we're utilizing all stakeholders throughout the city. So um, last year, well, before we abruptly changed and went into this virtual learning, uh, we were working with the first um, female African-American sheriff of Philadelphia. So we were partnering in her first, her first term and doing great work with our reading program. Uh, we're reaching out to our Sankofa Center, which is teaching our families and working with students uh, trauma-informed, pra- trauma-informed practices, um, how to implement that in the home setting and what we're doing on the school front and just creating symposiums, uh, just doing a lot of work in the community, man, and overall, just a great experience. Mm. Yeah, the, that's interesting. So I, I actually didn't know that Afrocentric social studies, Afrocentric arts. Um, what, what is the percentage of African-American students at the school? We're 95%. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah, um, it's, it's amazing, man. It's something to see. Uh-huh. What about the educators? The educators? 
the the ratio of breakdown of the educators? Um, man, statistic. I should actually know that number, that hard number right now. But uh, it's a predominant amount of our staff is African American, mm-hmm. um, which is very very unique mm-hmm. because in a lot of instances that isn't the case. Um, and I would say right now we're shifting to where we're attracting a lot of students that's coming uh, directly out of colleges. So we're kind of recruiting, um, partnering with a lot of our, our students that are completing their practicums and working hand in hand so we can create a pipeline. So, I mean, we're trying to, you know, kind of work that angle because that's what it's about as well. We want the students that are coming directly from the universities, getting that experience working with teachers during their practicum to be able to hit the ground running when it's time to put that theory into practice and they're in front of classrooms. Uh, so we're building those relationships. But um, for teaching wise, that is pretty much the makeup of our staff, predominantly African-American. Okay. And, and so the, the admissions process for the school, you know, like in San Francisco, we have a, this long-standing battle between traditional public and charter schools. Um, when you have a charter school in our state, the, the admissions process is specific to the school. So if a family wants to go to a charter school, they sort of apply to that site. And then they have like, you know, you already know this, but people that may not know. Um, uh, if there is room, they can get in. If there is not, there's, a, there's like a sort of a randomized selection within the charter. Um, explain a little bit about the dynamic between public and charter in Philadelphia. So for us, we are a public charter school. So for the most part, um, we're lottery based as well, but at the same time, we take students outside of a feeder area. So students from any part of the city pretty much can apply to our school. Um, and in the public sector, huge difference. You, all, you have to take those students that are in your feeder, feeder area. So, I mean, that's a big difference. And I mean, it, cr- it creates a lot of rift between both those entities and a lot of instances because you have a lot of things that can come from that. So one of the biggest, I would say, uh, disputes in that is the way that charter schools have a lot more autonomy in regards to how they, you know, their discipline system. So in the, in the public school, there's a lot that there's a lot more that you have to be able to go, go through when it comes to uh, being able to work a student through a process that gives them the right resources that they need when it comes to supporting them for discipline. In the charter school, we have a lot more autonomy to be able to do such. And so let's say, for instance, that kid may go through all of that disciplinary system and arrive to the point to where they no longer can be a part of that company um, or expelled, they'll go to their public school. And the public school really doesn't have that much wiggle room in that because they have to take that student if they reside in their feeder area and provide the resources as necessary. And where we come into a problem is when you're strained for resources, it's hard to be able to cast that net and give them everything that they need so they can be successful in that transition. Because in the end of the day, both entities have the same intention for everybody to succeed, but it's a wrestling for resources on, on being able to give that student and all these differentiated manners coming from different backgrounds, different, you know, income brackets or what have you, giving them the necessary resources that they need. Because when that student doesn't get that, I mean, it affects your school community and it just creates that it's a constant battle between such. And we just have to really come to the table to discuss, you know, how we can find something that's a little more equitable in regards to that. Um, and, and, and some other things as well. With your role as assistant principal, uh, what, are, what are some of like your primary responsibilities at the site? And what were some of your objectives this year before uh, shelter in place started? Mm, that's an awesome question. All right, so it's a couple pieces to that one. So 
first I'll start off with my particular roles as assistant principal at the current charter school I'm uh, serving, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So um, at my current school right now, what I do in the assistant principal role is I oversee climate and I oversee culture. Um, and those are two huge components when we start to talk about just school community in general, not thinking about public or charter, just across the board. So for me, my main objective has been in my tenure currently right now has been how do I create a sustainable uh, disciplinary system that creates a different shifting mindset around discipline, especially with our black children. Um, because one of the things that we're trying to counteract right now is the school to prison pipeline, where you have our students that are receiving punitive discipline, disciplinary measures that lead to a mindset around criminalization, thinking I am a student who, who does bad, I am bad, so I expect to be bad, or just lining up a student to making a bad decision, which leads to consequences of a student walking out in handcuffs. And to me, as an administrator, that's always been something hard to know that exists and have seen before. Um, and so for me, developing a system that helps our students to rewire how we handle conflict, how we discuss conflict, and how we, how we rebuild and repair relationships has been one of my biggest charges. And right now, currently at my school, we have um, a youth court, which is known as the Philadelphia Youth Court, which is started by the director, Francine Daniels. So we're partnering together um, as someone who oversees climate and works together to create a youth court system to where students are holding their peers accountable in the court setting. So you have, you have your student advocate, you have your jury, which compares it, which comprises their their peers, um, and it and they have a judge. I mean, it's every component that you would ask for in the justice system in the courtroom, mm -hmm. holding a peer accountable. Mm -hmm. To see that in reality is powerful, because the dialogue and parents are present as well. We invite um, the students' community. So basically, their community, their parents. They may have a basketball coach that is like a mentor. Every person that has an impact in that student life is present when they come to youth court um, and the finalization of everything is a student is, is receive sanctions. But all of those sanctions are driven to them repairing whatever aspect that was taken from the school community. Mm -hmm. So be it community service, being writing an essay, um, conducting and leading a symposium, among, a symposium amongst their peers. It is all in a restorative manner and creating a culture and environment to where that thrives is where I see the measure of my work because it reflects in the community and it develops that trust now to where parents are ready to work with us. And it's a different shift in the lens on how we are there to support that child. Um, and you just see the development in the child over the years because it's just like they own their accountability differently. They articulate how they own that differently. And their sense of civic duty in their community is just on another wavelength, man. And it's amazing. But that's just one of the pieces that I oversee. Um, I also oversee our PBIS program, which is Positive Behavior Intervention Systems, um, where we incentivize a lot of the things that we do. But really, from my perspective, is it's just another bridge builder, another bridge builder to bring things that kids like that make learning fun. So you'll have your Stafford Scholar basketball game. You have your daddy-daughter ball. We had 114 fathers, you know, that in some instances, sometimes it's hard to get in contact with. But mm -hmm. when you put a ball together, we're getting dressed up to have fun. You have fathers coming out and we're having a good time. Mm -hmm. But intentionally behind the scenes, we're trying to take advantage of an opportunity to build a bridge, right? Mm -hmm. To get another stakeholder that can help us to do what we need to do, which is the good work for your child. So, I mean, it's just so much power in being able to oversee something like that and, and create that creativity and really just let it grow. Um, and like I said before, I oversee, um, well, I, I just explained both of them, climate and culture. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and what was the second part of that question? I'm sorry. Yeah, just like um, uh, it was about the changes that have happened since shelter in place. But like, you know, I know you, you started your year, all, most, most schools, they start their year um, with like these objectives. Like, oh, this year we're gonna make sure this happens, right? Um, so how did your year start? And then what, what has it been like to transition to shelter in place? Oh, wow. <laughs> Man, um, for everybody, just to put it simple, abruptly. I mean, no preparation is just life just changed drastically. And as a leader, you have to consistently be on your feet and be able to adapt to change. But I always say is in my leadership style is we're conditioning good habits. So when we do have to go on autopilot, we automatically know how to react. Right. It's a good habit. It's autopilot in regards to how we find a solution or take the time to find one. And so I think that's uh, a spark that we've started amongst our administrative team which has kind of just branched out into just our whole school community. And so having to prepare for that shift, we adjusted to the growing pains, you know, trying to outline what are those core values, what are those things that we want to keep and maintain throughout this virtual aspect of learning, um, those non-negotiables. And eventually we work towards gaining the consensus enough to move forward to create the structures of our virtual program. But um, in my particular role, my current goal at that time was consistently decreasing our suspension rate. And like I said before, creating those structures to where our restorative um, practices continually thrives in the school and in the community. And so for us, my first year coming in, we were suspending 160 kids a year. Um, in that first year, my completion of the first year, we were suspending 90 kids a year. After that, we come into my third, we're down at 61. And currently we wanted to, tra- we wanted to cut that number in half. So we were on a trajectory to do such, and we were at about 40 suspensions um, in November. So we were definitely looking pretty good, even if we were not going to hit that goal, we're somewhere near there. But like I said before, behind the scenes, it's about those relationships and the actual work that we're doing. is isn't the numbers, it's about the mindset. So we were shifting that and going into the pandemic is shell shock because it's hard to have those emotional connections. So, you know, and it's, it's a huge gap when it comes to technology resources for our kids. I mean, thankfully, we've been able to issue a laptop to almost every single scholar in our school. And like I said, we're serving 656 scholars, but every scholar that needed a laptop, we were looking at about 300, half our population. We were able to serve them with laptops, but you still have those dynamics in the households um, that prevent them to be able to participate, engage. You have your your internet service that may not be the best. Uh, Parents is working two jobs and can't provide the time for them to sit down with them to do what needs to be done, or simply a sibling is sharing two computers. So once again, it's a wrestling for resources, but now it shifts to the virtual world. And I think the challenge now is how do we continuously fill in those gaps, right? Outside of what the school in some instances just can't do because we just don't have the tentacles to be able to reach there. It's just a little bit further sometimes, but how do we fill those needs, those deficits, but at the same time, provide that high quality instruction, um, make that, that connection when it comes to that continual building of relationships. And, and most importantly, keep learning fun so that we're still moving kids um, in just kind of an uncharted water type area. So, I mean, it's just so many unknown variables, but I think as we continuously go, we're learning more, we're adjusting, um, and most importantly, we're tailoring it to every learning possible um, throughout our school. There's a bunch of background noise that started in my place listen we working it out brother ain't no thing man <laughs> uh, all my time. yeah um 
Yeah, one of, one of the big one of the big things I've heard about uh, from sites is how to support families around wellness, right? Because mm. what was coming out of uh, China, what we've seen in certain areas of the country, like you know, domestic violence is up, suicides are up. Mm-hmm. Uh, for our black communities, like the, the rates that people are actually getting COVID is disproportionate. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the, the, the people are losing jobs, like the amount of like desperation in the home uh, is very much affecting learning and children. And, and so like, you know, you were, you were leading and doing a good, good job, it sounds like, at de-escalating issues and, and trying to uh, support people, families around how they approach school and mindset and, uh, and how people may or may not be struggling as elevated because shelter in place has started. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, sounds like you don't have to necessarily do suspensions now. I don't know if that that's still the case. <laughs> anyway, so. It's deeper than that now, man. It's, it's yeah, deeper than but, suspensions. Uh, well, what is the, how, how are you approaching that, that like supporting families or, or what do you, and also what are you kind of seeing? Is, is that, is that happening there? Are you seeing like, um, issues around wellness or, or safety um, affecting students? For us, um, I mean, that definitely exists. and You do see that here and there. Um, but for us, man, it's been creating, I would say, the structure to allow us to be able to find out all of those families that are in need because we're canvassing such a large community. So one thing that we do in our school is we have an MTSS team um, multi-tiered support system. And basically it's every component of leadership in our building from our, all of our leadership principal, assistant principal, uh, your SEL, which is your special education liaison, your math coaches, your ELA coaches, your counselor, your dean, you have every thinking mind that leads some sector in your building. And in that team that we've created, everybody uses their specific lanes, their relationships to reach out to families, to make sure we're not get, we can get to the crevices of the places where we may not have a working contact phone number. Because like you said before, that parent lost that job. So now there's no working number. We may need a, fa- a staff member that has a backdoor relationship with an aunt that can get this to the uncle to find out what we can do to service you what what um resource we can offer to you hey you can call into our school we have a zoom linked up for a restorative sister circle which comes out of our youth court component so we have that mental um wellness aspect that we offer to our parents and our students so you know what we have right now on a bi-weekly basis we're running restorative circles um with a theme and uh, our first theme starting off when we first came into the pandemic was i am not okay so it was pretty much opening up and just saying hey look i am going through something not bottle that up, let that out, talk about it, discuss it, share those feelings and repair them. Um, and just what I've seen is creating that mechanism for people to be able to articulate how they're feeling, to be able to express that, to see that others are going through the same thing and being able to use that energy to motivate each other. Um, it's, it's worked wonders for us because parents appreciate it, families appreciate it, and most importantly, our students appreciate it because they can feel that, that family aspect. They, they can feel like, um, I know my assistant principal made me be calling, but that assistant principal was like my uncle because he really want to know, am I good? Not, are you okay? No, are you good? And then what can I do to help you? What can I offer to help you? And if I can't do it, I can find somebody else that can do it. And I think just that sense of, um, of, of empathy, um, that sense of care, 
it's contagious because our team has that fire and it's that fire that helps us to be able to get the results that we have today, which is one of the highest participation rates um, in our virtual learning. We're in the 73 percentile. We could do a whole lot better, but we're, we're trending up because we're still going and we're already developing a plan for next year. How do we increase that participation rate or how do we, like I said before, address a need that can um, help that student to be able to participate in that virtual learning. So we're always brainstorming how to do that now um, in the present, in real time. Um, and I think we just got a lot more that we can learn because I don't think this is over and we just got to adjust. It may be a new norm, but at the same time, if we adjust effectively, we can get somewhere where we need to be and we just keep making that incremental growth. I respect that. Um, yeah, a, a lot of a lot of the terms too are similar. Like we have MTSS, we have like um, mm -hmm. responsive intervention, we have uh, a conversation mm -hmm. about equity, and I, and I always find that you know people know how to use the, the right words, but they don't necessarily mm -hmm. know how to connect. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like not are you okay? Are you good? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, it's layers to that, man. It's yeah. layers, man. Yeah. It's layers. If somebody would try to replicate that, like, are you good? <laughs> you know, and, and not being able to, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, and then the IT, yeah. you know, the competency. Um, I really want to visit your school at some point when, you know, at some point in the future. Uh, sounds like a, a, a beautiful place, and it would be great to see. Um, yeah, oh, man, uh, definitely. What do you see for yourself? Because I want to, I want to, you know, sort of transition to, to uh, close this out. Like you, you're working in education, your kids are growing. Um, what, speak a little bit about your, your, your aspirations around um, the work you want to do in education. I push myself so hard, man. Sometimes I tend to just keep pushing and just don't know how to stay in the present. Um, so, I mean, that's something that I continuously reflective of as a profession because, I mean, you have to be. If you're not reflecting on where you're going, you, it, there's no way to draw up a plan to get there. Mm -hmm. But um, for me, man, just in the present future, man, is just, I'm working to, of course, lead my own school um, and just really instilled, instill those core values that I've been able to learn along the way. Um, those gems that I've learned from my mentors, um, the innovative things that I really want to do for my community which I've continuously worked out throughout my tenure in education. I've always been in the black community, um, trying to give back and do the best I can to help somebody avoid what I had to go through. Mm -hmm. um, so just leading my own school, man. Um, I too myself am aspiring to start up a podcast. Mm -hmm. I'm in the, the beginning phases of it. Shout out to the Urban Education Cypher. Um, uh, you should see that sometime in the fall. Mm -hmm. But um, for me, man, it's just continuously creating dialogue around the things that are important that we need to be talking about, man, that helps to serve our people and our communities, man, because being ignorant to something, I mean, you just don't know what's going on. So to be an advocate around that issue that really affects your child, that could change the trajectory of their future, if you don't know about it, you can't act. So to me, man, it's in any capacity that I serve in, man, creating dialogue around those things that we need to be talking about, creating action items to a man, getting out there with our, our feet on the ground, man, and doing every job possible to make sure that the job gets done, man. And for me, man, I'm just learning and, um, and just trying to, wherever the spirit leads me, man, but just always for my people, for my community, man, and for this next generation, because we're not here forever, brother. We invested a little bit, poured it in there, and just hoping that our legacy stands firm, man. You're right. I, um, do you remember Alex Osborne? Yes, I, man. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wearing this. I, he's, he's my personal trainer. I'm wearing this. We do a lot of the virtual, like, I, 
he trained me earlier today. And, okay, uh, okay. <laughs> shout out to Alex Osborne. Shout out to Diane. Yes, shout out to the uh, what's 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 the name of the podcast again? Repeat the name. The Ur- the Urban Education Cipher. The Urban Education Cipher. Shout the out Urban to Education Cipher. Um, I bring up Alex because uh, before we started the podcast, you you said that you were vegan, and uh, which is related to health and working out. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, just say a little bit about about that, like what 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 led you to do that, and, and um, the benefits that you've experienced. Man, I was I was fortunate, man. I'll be very honest. Let's go there first. Okay. My wife is a bomb cook, brother. She's a vegan chef. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> cigarette, vegan chef. Okay. And when I say taking a vegetable and and whatever sauce and uh-huh. she can work magic. And I, I think that was definitely a bonus to the transition. Uh-huh. But um, when we get to the principles of it, man, it just was just trying to elevate, man. Just trying to elevate, man, and always just a secret truth and making a connection to everything that's around me, man. The planet being one as well. You know, I'm a big sustainability um, buff, man. You know, I'm, I'm active in my community on trying to uh, measure the pH levels in the creek and find out what's going on, man. And, you know, that's just us, man. My kids have been conditioned to love it, too. So, you know, we, for us, man, it's, it's about not harming the animal, man. Um, and because they're, they exist and have spirits just like us. But um, on the health tip of it, man, is just investing in my health for longevity as well. You know, understanding what happens to our food and making a conscious decision to say, I just want to do something different. Um, and different for me feels good. Um, I'm 35, man. I, I feel great. You know, I'm very active, man. And I see a lot of people my age that look about 15 years sometimes, man. And it's just like, I know you're not taking care of yourself. I mean, you could be stressed about going through a lot, man. But our eating habits and the way that we exercise and the way that we take care of our minds, man, has an effect on the way that we age. And um, it's just trying to be grounded, you know, physically, mentally and spiritually. And veganism has that connection for me and my family. And um, never looking back, man. I love it. I love it, bro. That's what's up. That's what's up. Hakeem Rose, assistant principal, Universal Family Schools, South Philadelphia, Bay Area Roots, Frisco Kid, MLK. Oh, dang. <laughs> oh, dang. Uh, the, the Education Cypher. The educate the urban education cipher. Education cipher. The urban education cipher. Coming to you yep. soon. Uh, how can people get a hold of you? So you can contact me at urban dot education dot cipher c i p h e r at gmail You can send anything, but let me tell you this: when that wave is coming, we're gonna talk about some courageous conversations. And for me. I'm always entertaining a courageous conversation for our people and to make sure we're pushing us forward and doing the best for our kids. And you can check me there. Get with me. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Rose. It was, this was dope. I appreciate it. Thank you, good brother. Always a good time. Yeah.